people think we need incrementalism and that that's what harm reduction is. But these motherfuckers don't know anything about harm reduction. And it has become appropriated in a kind of perverse way. And frankly, I contributed to that when I used to many years ago call voting harm reduction. But voting isn't harm reduction. In this way, harm reduction becomes this way of talking about not hurting people more. And I understand it. And yet it does make me get more and more frustrated that it's being divorced from its roots and being used now as this cover all to implement incrementalism with no analysis of how they are actually expanding the capacity and reach of the carceral state. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening Hello, thank you so much, everyone, for being here and welcome to the book launch for Saving Our Own Lives, a liberatory practice of harm reduction. I cannot believe that it happened. It um, This book has been in formation for four years and was actually something that was said to me 27 years ago. Um, when I was a young person in an organization and I was frantically looking for sources and someone said to me, you need to just start writing down what you're doing. And so we did, we wrote everything down that we could in zines and we wrote everything that we could down in poems and we wrote everything that we could down in posters and then toolkits and then workbooks and then one day um, started trying to formulate those ideas into something that could come together into this book. So I'm so, so, so grateful and want to say thank you for being here. And thank you to the entire team at Haymarket, to Julie, to Rachel, to Caroline, to Dana, to Jim, to Sean. Thank you so, so much. Before we go too much further, I want to um, do a land acknowledgement. Um, next slide, please. So I'm based in Chicago, the ancestral land of the Potawatomi people. Thank, um, thanks to the data and society who created this digital land acknowledgement I adopted for tonight's event. Today, we are connected online via a different system, a vast array of servers, cables, and computer devices. On Turtle Island, occupied by the United States, this infrastructure sits on stolen land acquired under the extractive logic of white settler expansion. As a movement, we recognize this history and uplift the sovereignty of indigenous people, data, and territory. We commit beyond symbolic rhetoric to dismantling all ongoing settler colonial practices and their material implications on our digital world. 
To learn whose land you are on, you can go to native-land.ca. And um, I'm so grateful to everyone who helped me learn um, about whose land I'm on. And I appreciate so much the opportunity to be here with you tonight. Next slide, please. Um, this book was edited and held up by so many people, but I first want to shout out Dina Lewis, who I don't actually know how she did this, but she took my very broken pieces of a story and helped me weave it into something that I hope you will all be able to read. Um, and Marcus Rogers, who's one of my oldest, um, dearest family and uh, chosen family and queer chosen family, which is so much of what this book is about, did the beautiful cover art. And the internal images um, are by Liz Artistry, who I met through the abolitionist social worker um, group on Facebook. And I wanted this book to feel true to its original form and what I came up learning about harm reduction was in zines and zines were how we survived. And Liz helped me make this book feel true to the zine culture that I've been a part of um, since I was a young person. I'm going to continue just for one minute on the gratitudes um, before I take you through a little bit of the book. And so I just want to um, let you know that this book and the dedication to this book, uh, the dedication of this book on the front page um, is one of the one of the things that I wrote first and that I wrote over and over. And that was on my sacred space, um, which is behind me, where I keep all of my guides and um what I call my like my love sacred space where everyone who I've ever loved or who loved me at any point is on this altar. And this was on there for the whole time that I was writing this book and it's still there now. I am here because the part of me that wanted to survive joined forces with other people who wanted us to survive. My guides were the aunties and uncles of street youth who were street youth themselves who believed that building us up Building our individual and collective power is a resilience practice and is the key to our cultural, political, and individual survivor survival. The gift of being able and of wanting to write this book came directly through the investments my community made in me when I was a young person. And this book, in turn, is my gift back to the community that created liberatory harm reduction, who saved me and who taught us all how to save our own lives. And to you, if you could advance the slide. This book is really for you. It's for all of us who need to understand that sex workers and drug users created harm reduction, that black, brown, indigenous people of color created harm reduction as part of a liberatory practice towards our survival as a people, that it did not come from public health, that it may be useful to public health, 
but that it came in through so many forces that wanted us all to be here. And if it was not for my career chosen family and lineage, I wouldn't know any of this because the more I started talking to people in my life about how we figured out how to save our own lives, the more I understood the intentional practice that was informed by political values, but really informed by the deep commitment to our community and people's survival. This book would not have been written without Mariam, without Rachel Kaidor, without Dina Lewis, who are a part of my collective that I've been a part of for the last 10 years, Just Practice. It wouldn't have been written without Adrienne Marie Brown, without Erica, without, without Erica Woodland, without Native Youth Sexual Health Network, who are here tonight. It wouldn't have been written Uh, written without the incredible work of Interrupting Criminalization and Project NIA. And if you advance the slide, I want to especially call out my co-thinkers for the last 22 years, which is Young Women's Empowerment Project, which was a project that was led by and for young people of color who were trading sex for money for survival, who are in the sex trade and street economy, and who now exist in another formation called Street Youth Rise Up. And Street Youth Rise Up works to change the way Chicago sees and treats its homeless, home-free, and street-based youth who do what they have to do to survive. Arguably, the work of Young Women's Empowerment Project has informed how how we all think about the sex trade and street economy, all over the world. Their work has gone to the United Nations, it's been in the New York Times, and it's changed our language. And so a big part of why I wrote this book was to make sure that people understand that sex workers, that trans people, that queer people of color are the people that we are alive because of, that these practices, these resources, the resilient strategies that we have are here because we taught each other how to be here. Um, I'm going to take you through a few of the images and talk a little bit about the background of the book and why we're talking about this as liberatory harm reduction. And so I'm going to um, read a little bit from the book. And I want to ask Sean, um, Sean is our amazing tech person from Haymarket, if you could advance the slide just every minute or so, because I'm going to read as um, people can see the images of the artwork that's inside. Um, And what I'm reading is a little bit different than um, what the images are. Um, But I want you to be able to sort of experience both together because so much of the purpose of the book was to combine um, a visual representation of how we understand and how we see each other so that there was more than one way for us to be together in the work and practice of staying alive together. So um, these are the first few pages. Um, of saving our own lives. And Sean, whenever you're ready, you can just advance the slide every minute or so until you get to the end of the images, the black and white images. Uh, Okay. I am not a trained writer by most definitions. Other than my own zines, I have only written with my sisters and comrades using circles and butcher paper and hours of sharing. I'm also not a trained historian. 
that I've been gathering the stories of my community, the people I love, for nearly three decades. This book was pulled from those of us who are street healers and radical activists after what has felt like a decades-long divination. My collaborators, many of whom I've lived with and worked with toward our collective liberation for more than 25 years, held me in this writing process through online co-working dates, virtual handholding, edits, rewrites, and endless conversations about my own truth and the beauty of our intersecting realities that this book is reclaiming and renaming liberatory harm reduction. In many ways, the writing of this book is an example of liberatory harm reduction in action. Loved ones surrounded me and moved with me at the pace of fear while I panicked every time I sat down to try to honor this precious information, painstakingly assembled through more than 60 interviews with queer, trans, Black, Brown, Indigenous people of color who breathe life into the daily practice of saving our lives. Every interview I did contained a prayer for our people, a crafted wish, that our discussions would lead us to a formula that could make clear the interweaving radical actualizations of care and fight. The purpose of this project to reclaim the history and creation of harm reduction as a liberatory strategy that was developed by Black Indigenous people of color who were sex workers, queer, transgender, using drugs, young people, people with disabilities and chronic illnesses, street-based and sometimes houseless. This project project seeks to make clear a distinction between our practices of harm reduction and the ways that public health and social workers have co-opted its messages and meaning. We need to reclaim harm reduction in our voices, history, and legacy within it. We need to document our values that are the basis for this care work. This book is titled Saving Our Own Lives because that's what we did and do every day. And those of us who do not survive whisper the secrets of how to be safer to the next generation through cherished platforms like handwritten instructional zines and songs, protest chants, and the stories of our communities that we share through our vast oral histories. This book is what happens when those of us who are targeted by the intersections of structural violence, by forces such as institutional racism, settler colonialism, ableism, capitalism, misogyny, Islamophobia, homophobia, fatphobia, transphobia, survive, thrive, and build power together. This book is an invitation. It is an invitation to BIPOC communities, to transgender and queer communities, to sex working and drug using communities, to disabled and chronically ill communities, to young people, to all of us who are survivors of violence, including those of us who have not survived, to recenter our history and see ourselves and our culture as the creators of this hardworking magic that has been gifted to us through memories and generational resilience. Saving Our Own Lives hopes to challenge the widespread and mistaken belief that harm reduction is only a public health model or only a behavior change model. I hope that you can see from this book that while harm reduction is most often thought of as a set of practical strategies used to address injection drug use, which saved my life, It is actually a liberatory approach to community preservation and a value-based creation that can be used to address everything from violence to eating disorders to policing. This book is an invitation to public health departments and social workers to get clear about the meaning, history, and praxis of liberatory harm reduction so that those institutions can begin to honestly acknowledge their theft of a people's generation-long practice. 
this inclusion, the inclusion of harm reduction inside public health and social work is necessary. It's a critical strategy to reduce the combined impact of the deadly medical industrial complex and the prison industrial complex and the treatment industry on the lives of the people it claims to serve with dignity and respect. But public health must own that it cannot practice a liberatory harm reduction inside those dehumanizing, ableist, and death-making systems. It must admit that it did not create, grow, or honor the roots of this praxis. This book was written because I owe my life to my community's practice. I owe my life to Kelly McGowan. I owe my life to this practice that that holds trauma, resistance, resilience, joy, creativity, passion, anger, and heart. This book is about my community's practice and an, and an homage to as many of my elders and ancestors that I could get into these pages. It's my humble and incomplete offering back to the hours of investment that so many mentors, community members, and chosen family made in my work and survival. When I feel small in the face of this project and inadequate next to the legendary activists who gave life to the rituals of love that is liberatory harm reduction, I remember that my ultimate hope is that this book will help create an avalanche of books about you and how your community's liberatory practice of liberatory harm reduction operates in your town, your city, your life, so that none of us can be erased from our work. None of us can be erased from our own survival stories. Maybe you are or were using drugs, trading sex for money, disabled, chronically ill, practicing self-injury, fighting for a world without prison, policing, violence, and harm, fighting for your children and families and family, both given and chosen, so that you can understand your lineage, where you come from, and the fact that we are here because our warriors whispered message like fuck safe, shoot clean, and showed us how to cook enough food from one can for the whole block without electricity. This book is a gift to you, you beautiful, complicated, messy, powerful, precious survivor. This book is for all of us. So with that, I'm so excited to introduce you to some of the writing and the reading that's in this book. And I'm going to introduce everyone all at once who's about to read. And then um, we'll just flow from there. So we're going to hear from Adrian Marie Brown. And we don't know how we met, but we know we were in our very early 20s. And it, it was it was well over 20 years ago and possibly longer at this point. And so I'm so excited to um, have Adrian in the forward because so much of our early love was around harm reduction and how we were surviving and making it. I want to introduce you to Mariam Kaba. And Mariam and I have a kind of a phantom past where we cross paths as young people but did not know each other. And so I like to think if you paint our, painted our feet throughout the Lower East Side that we would have been crossing all over the place and maybe even we're in the same place at the same time. And so we've known of each other since we were very young and we've been working together in Chicago for over 20 years. I'm so excited that you're going to hear from Erica Woodland, who is someone else who we're not entirely sure how we met, but it was through harm reduction. And it's been one of the central themes of our thought partnership for at least the last five years and probably well into 15 years, if we're honest, but we're not sure how to count. And I want to introduce you to um, 
Native Youth Sexual Health Network, who I met through Young Women's Empowerment Project about 15 years ago. And I met um, the folks who I interviewed and uh, through Native Youth Sexual Health Network as they were sort of shifting how we were all understanding and recognizing how the roots and origins of liberatory harm reduction played out. Um, and so we're going to hear from Yahande Foote and Emma Allen um, and some of the incredible work that they've been doing and documenting around a lot of the origin stories of liberatory harm reduction. So with that, I'm going to mute myself and pass it to Adrian. Wow, Shira, I love you so much. Like, it's kind of unbelievable. <laughs> that reading you just did was outstanding. And I just want, I, I was feeling a standing ovation. So in case anyone else was feeling that, I'm like, let's, we just all did it together in our hearts. So I'm gonna share the forward. I walk around with the principles of harm reduction remixing in my mind, and in my heart. Accept what is. Drugs exist and people use them. Societal structures impact use and the result can be pleasure, relief, ease, comfort, addiction, and tragedy. Embrace the complexity of drug use, including the spectrum of using and not using, and acknowledge that there are safer ways to use any substance. Acknowledge that we live inside intersecting systems of egregious harm. Remember or relearn that no one is disposable. Honor the sovereignty of each person over their own paths and choices and let users hear each other and shape the support they receive. Set down whatever judgment or coercion arises and focus on the quality of life and connection see each person's humanity. Harm reduction was a revelation for me as a 21-year-old who just flunked out of college. I failed my French oral exam, but not for lack of trying, and then been fired from my first job, recruiting people to that college that I flunked out of because, well, they couldn't have a recruiter who had failed at college. It was New York City, it was the turn of the century, and I wanted to taste everything. When I learned through an online job search that the National Harm Reduction Coalition existed, I was thrilled. When I went into interview, I saw the most beautiful, badass group of humans I'd ever witnessed in one place from all backgrounds with tattoos and shaved heads or wild manes and style. And most of all, an honest way of being with what they needed and what they did. I spent two years doing the administrative work to support the training program. And along the way, I learned about syringe exchanges, safe injection sites, what it looks like when someone is on heroin, how to test ecstasy pills, the framework of drug set and setting, the power of sex worker survival strategies, that gender and sexuality were constructs and spectrums, that people with HIV AIDS were learning to thrive, and that I wasn't alone in my crazy, my depression, my coping, my trauma, or my needs. I also learned that harm reduction was a movement and a societal reframe bigger than any single institution or conference could hold. I remember people who are now ancestors teaching me to be freer and more exacting about collective freedom. I remember in particular the late Keith Kyler, long and dynamic, dancing and still, teaching me that pleasure was a worthwhile, important pursuit. 
I remember the late Don McVinney, my first supervisor, explaining who the trainers of the program were, survivors, innovators, fighters, people who had learned what they were offering from lived experience. I remember Shira Hassan walking into that space, gorgeous, glamorous, fat, and disabled with her head held high. She was there to run a training, but I instantly realized that Shira is someone who teaches both in the formal settings of a classroom and in the informal setting of a conversation in the way she holds the space and relationships around her. She walks with her history intact, both fluid and precise, meaning she might forget the exact timing of when a conversation happened, but she will remember the exact rhythm of it and what we were wearing and what we believed and both how and why those beliefs changed. Shira is not easily impressed and will not pretend untrue things are true for the sake of polite company. This means she is trustworthy in a long-term fight because her visionary nature guides her to speak what is true in the present moment, clarifying which fight we are actually in. <sighs> Years later, I would write books in which I reference concepts and teachers I gathered from my time in harm reduction work. In each book, I knew to be... Um, I had to be a writer who knew Shira was going to read my work, so I had to know what I knew and not pretend to know more. When I reached an edge of my own knowing around, say, transformative justice, I ceded the pages to Shira's experience. It is rare that I publish anything major without checking in with Shira. I've also called on her to help me and others through the murky territory of learning to be an accountable human being, accountable to the truth of my own body and needs accountable to the movements we serve, and accountable to our overlapping purpose of liberation. When she first told me she was writing this book to tell the story of harm reduction as transformative justice, as disability justice, as healing justice, as an act of reclamation of the black and brown root systems of this brilliant framework, I literally clapped my hands in celebration because I know that Shir Hassan will tell us the truth will help us see ourselves through a liberatory lens and will help us understand how we practice harm reduction together by reminding us that it is how we have been surviving. It is our intuitive lineage of offering radical care and generating belonging in the face of oppression. The structure of this book is very much like holding Shira's hand while moving through a gathering of harm reductionists not bound by space or time. There's theory, practice, humor, correction, political education, and so much deep and brave experimentation. This book is such an important piece of history, told to set the stage for changing the paradigm of how we understand drugs and justice. It is a weaving together of storytelling, conversation, analysis, and practical tools. It is a kaleidoscope of identities that have shared needs and healing journeys. It is a gift, and I am so grateful it is in your hands. I love you, Shira. Great. Thank you so much, Adrian, um, for that reading. And um, I just want to give a heads up that my computer continues to be unstable. So if you start hearing me speak and then you don't hear me speak anymore, you know what happened. And Erica will come, will jump in <laughs> to pick up the space and time. 
Um, so just to kick off, they said this day would never come. And by they, I mean, Shira, <laughs> oh, Shira said that I crack myself up if, it, if, if nobody else is cracking up along with me, <laughs> um, I'm really so very happy to be here this evening. You really have no idea. I knew that this book would eventually exist and make it out into the world, And I made it really part of my mission to help make it so. Maybe sometimes at the risk of being canceled by my good friend, though Adrian reminds us that we will not cancel ourselves and each other and us. Um, But I know that this wasn't an easy road or an easy project for you, Shira. And I know that you prefer to be in the background, but this book is so needed and you were the perfect person to help birth it. Why did I feel so strongly about the need for this book about liberatory harm reduction by Shira Hassan? Well, because I learned about liberatory harm reduction through my friendship and comradeship and partnership with Shira over these many years. And it shifted my consciousness and my practice. And I would not be the organizer or educator or frankly, the person I am without Shira's teaching and thinking. So. Today really means the world to me. I'm bursting with pride, with admiration and love. And I want to just say thank you to Shira for taking the leap in making this book. And thank you for all you've done and taught me and so many others. Thank you for always being a soft place to land for me and for so many others. So congratulations, friend. You really did it. Um... We were invited to read something from our contribution to the book. And I hate writing, even though I do it begrudgingly and loudly protesting the entire way. Shira knows that. And she smartly invited me to be in conversation with her for the book instead of forcing me to write anything. So my contribution was an interview. And I am not going to read all that whole interview because We will be here until tomorrow. I was rambling and who knows what the hell I was saying, but I'm just going to read a particular part because Shira wanted me to talk a little bit about the intersections between prison abolition and harm reduction. So the part of the interview I'm going to read, Shira begins by saying, I want to talk a little bit about the importance of prison abolition to harm reduction and vice versa. And then I begin. Yeah, I think for me, there were two things. I think the first is that for a long time, I've been saying pretty loudly to people that sometimes our work means doing nothing actually, that the answer isn't the quote unquote treatment industrial complex, and it isn't treatment, not jails. It just isn't. Oh, this person is drinking and let's all now put them in a program, which is just another form of a carceral enclosure or a carceral form of capture when it's not voluntary and people are mandated into it. I think there was a clear kind of harm reduction inspired understanding of that for me. I think that those social service things that I went to around addiction served me well to have a not a language when people, oh, sorry, when people were able to then just say, well, yeah, what about all these people who are on drugs? Well, we've got to handle them. They've got to be in jail. I'd say we can't, 
you know, we can't just leave, oh, they would say, we can't just leave them to their own devices. And it was like, actually, we can. There's a lot of people who are using who aren't actually addicts, and then people who are addicts who don't need carcerality in order to actually live a productive life that's not under capture. So that was one angle of where it was clear feel it can be a cop-out or an unhelpful label. We're doing this for harm reduction when actually you can really, again, just do nothing. And that's actually harm reduction. People think we need incrementalism and that that's what harm reduction is. But these, and then I I curse because I curse all the time. I say, but these motherfuckers don't know anything about harm reduction. And it has become appropriated in a kind of perverse way. And frankly, I contributed to that when I used to many years ago call voting harm reduction. But voting isn't harm reduction. I think for the most part, people are actually well-intentioned when they're trying to pull out harm reduction ideas. They're trying to acknowledge that people need shit. And we need resources and services, and we need ways to provide people the things that the system denies them. And how are we going to do that? In this way, harm reduction becomes this way of talking about not hurting people more. And so it really makes sense, and I understand it. And yet it does make me get more and more frustrated that it's being divorced from its roots and being used now as this coverall to implement incrementalism with no analysis of how they are actually expanding the capacity and reach of the carceral state. So I ramble on for several more paragraphs, but I'm going to stop there. I hope that doesn't make you not want to read this book. You can skip that interview and read the beautiful things that everybody else has contributed, but that's a little bit about that. For me, Abolition is and has always been about dismantling all carceral institutions and building new social relations and ways to create communities of care, of accountability, and the institutions that support our overall well-being. And so as abolitionists, we don't really care about harm because it's criminal. We care because it hurts people. And liberatory harm reduction is about creating communities of care and about supporting people. And ultimately, to me, PIC abolition is a vision of a restructured world. And I think that liberatory harm reduction offers some of the fuel that we need on that path. This book is essential reading. And I hope that you've already ordered your copy and that you are ordering five other copies for people you know, and that together you're going to take the time to read this beautiful offering that Shira has pulled together for all of us to be able to enjoy and to be able to be provoked by and to be able to actually help us on our journey towards more freedom and eventually liberation. I don't think you'll be sorry if you pick up the book. So. Shira, thanks so much again for making it happen. I'll throw it over to Erica. If you are enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism, and the Rise of Racist Nationalism by Harsha Walia. Border and Rule explores a number of seemingly disparate global geographies with shared logics of border rule that displace, immobilize, criminalize, exploit, and expel migrants and refugees. Harsha Walia 
demonstrates how borders divide the international working class and consolidate imperial, capitalist, ruling class, and racist nationalist rule, cogently mapping the lucrative connections between state violence, capitalism, and right-wing nationalism around the world. As Naomi Klein puts it, this is a book of unsparing truth and dazzling ambition, providing readers with desperately needed intellectual ammunition to confront the inherent violence of borders, an enormous contribution to our movements. Find Border and Rule at haymarketbooks.org. I think I think it might actually be getting thrown over to the folks at Mission. Um, okay. Unless Erica, you would like to take take it away. But oh, I, I oh, feel free. Staring at the uh, uh, at the camera. So um, get you miigwech. Um, hopefully, our slides are coming up in their own time. Um, and I just want to like say get you miigwech and many many thanks for everyone who's already spoken. Those are some real powerful and heartfelt words. Um, so we'll just start by introducing ourselves. So Ani Gwe, I'm an Indigenous, Makinakundorum, Sharpet Lake Indigenous, Miguel Lakongan and Da. Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Emma, Anishinaabe from Sharpet Lake, which is a small community in southern Ontario. But I really had the honor and the privilege to be like raised up by a bunch of aunties. Um, and my mom in Toronto and Tukulundo, a lot of urban indigenous aunties from Lenape, who were Lenape or Mohawk, um, Cree Métis, um, and all whole pack of cousins, uh, where I get my teachings from. Uh, and I've been with Native Youth Sexual Health Network doing uh, the work of reducing the harms of colonialism. <laughs> I've been uh, doing that with Nishin for more than 10 years. Nihonde? Um, yeah, uh, hi everyone. Uh, Yahande Foot Yujats. Uh, yeah, my name's Yahande Foot, and I've also been with Nishin for quite a while. I think it's like 13 years this year, which is pretty awesome. Um, yeah, so I'm Mohawk from Ganawage next to Montreal. Uh, it's a Mohawk reserve, so. I'm I'm glad to be living with my family and around my kin, but also, yeah, folks from the Native Youth Sexual Health Network are all across Turtle Island. So, yeah, sharing virtual space is a big part of our lives. Um, so, yes, I'm happy. I'm happy to be here. And, yeah, the interviews were so great. Um, and rereading everything was kind of a trip. It was I was like, wow, that was a little while ago, but it wasn't, but it, it was. Time is weird. Um, but yeah. Amazing. Maybe we could mosey on to the next slide. Um, so we thought we should start by saying a little bit about who Nishin is. Um, so we're a network of intergenerational relatives who are youth-led, um, spanning throughout our home territories, um, which looks like youth leaders doing work in their home communities as far down south as New Mexico, and then as far north as Ihaluit and Nome, Alaska. Um, so like very much Arctic Circle. Um, and then pretty much coast to coast. I'm our farthest west uh, with a fabulous team here on Vancouver Island. Um, and then we have some east coasters as well, holding it down in their home territories. Um, and like Yohande said, uh, really a lot of uh, digital work um, comes together to make this possible. 
including in the days pre-Zoom when we had a teleconference line that we all <laughs> called into, um, and also the opportunity to gather whenever we can. So uh, what makes it Nishin is we say that um, we do the work that we know our communities need, everything and anything having to do with our spaces, our bodies. So that often looks like sexual health and reproductive justice. And then sometimes people are like confused. They're like, why are you talking about harm reduction then? Um, and it's because we know we, we never get the privilege to be single issue people. And we're always navigating our, our worlds as whole beings. Um, and so you really can't reduce us uh, just to our suicide rates or our rates of diabetes or our rates of pregnancy because these rates uh, don't hold the truth of who we really are. So I'll uh, pass over to Yohande with the next slide. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, our key areas of work, I don't know why the word key is in there. It's a lot of <laughs> topics. Um, but as you can see, right, from culturally safe sex education, harm reduction um, is within a lot of these subjects as well, um, which we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, but talking about like cultural things like reclaiming rites of passage and coming of age ceremonies and traditional knowledge to HIV and AIDS awareness and prevention. Um, yes, lots, lots of subjects, but it's all intertwined because, right, it's a whole person um, when things come up. You're not just fixing quote unquote, or like savior, um, complexing, like, you know, one, just one subject. Cause it's, it all works together. Um, which we will talk about next. Pass it over to you, Emma, if we want to change to the next slide. Yes. So hopefully we're looking at a slide with a white background and some, a red fire somewhere in the center. Um, and uh, this, I just did some mental math. This image was created eight years ago now, which is a little wild. Um, and it's uh, our four fires model of harm reduction, um, sort of created as um, a tool for critically thinking about the four pillars model. Um, one of like my favorite harm reduction teachers, our antique Crystal Williams at the network often says like, because what are the four pillars holding up? Uh, and the answer is colonialism. Um, those four pillars are very carceral. <laughs> they depend on the existence of the colonial state in many ways and ignore both our autonomy as Indigenous peoples um, and our sovereignty as uh, Indigenous nations. Um, so we kind of got to sneak in an extra chapter there um, because Shira generously offered to <laughs> include this in the book. Um, and so I just wanted to spend a little bit of time, although you can you can read the full article in the book, of course, just thinking about um, what each of these fires mean a little bit. So we talk about cultural safety um, and cultural safety is a term that comes from our Maori uh, relatives in Aotearoa. Um, and we talk about the power differentials that exist between us and so-called care providers or service providers um, and how these set up to why Sometimes we have to be able to acknowledge or think deeply about why clinic is not and maybe cannot ever be a safe space for all of our community members. Um, 
because a lot of the solutions that public health wants to give us all are coming in that clinic-based system. And for me, harm reduction carries uh, some of its deepest magic and love in the potentiality for us to hold care for each other in our relationships and to hold care for ourselves, um, regardless of where we are geographically or physically. Um, and it makes possible um, a lot of harm reduction to reduce the harms of clinical settings. Um, talk about reclamation. Many of our communities have been impacted by colonialism uh, and have these protocols in place that mean that you can't come to ceremony unless you've been abstinent from drug or alcohol use for a certain period of time. And so in our work, we look at that as really punitive and restrictive. And we ask some hard questions about why that is and where those teachings come from. And we think about how uh, oftentimes our folks are using to cope and survive the violence of the settler colonial state. And so what does it mean to further punish and take away our medicines and our ability to access healing, uh, no matter what that looks like for us? Um, which kind of brings us towards self-determination. We talk about this as like, we don't define what harm is or isn't for other people at Nesham. That's what harm reduction, it's part of what harm reduction means to us. Um, because it's a very like deeply rooted in many of our teachings. You can't know another person's experience. All you can know is your own. You can only be the expert of your own lived experience. So we really support each other's self-determination to know that like, actually maybe what's harming me right now is not like the meth I'm using so much as it is like my land being stolen <laughs> and the fact that I can't hunt or harvest on my own territories without being arrested. Uh, maybe like we can ask some more questions about what the real harms are. Um, and then lastly, sovereignty. Um, so already we've been talking about like the ways that the health systems are very incredibly carceral um, and our communities have known that to be true um, ever since they were forced upon us. So um, for us, sovereignty also means uh, like not forcing anybody into care or into um, recovery situations, quote unquote. And supporting the bodily sovereignty of, the, of that person. And then there's the cheeky slogan that indigenous peoples have been reducing the harms of colonialism for 500 years, um, which is true. Uh, but also, uh, I think we like to add that we were reducing harms in our communities before then, too. Harm is not something that uh, colonizers have ownership over. Um, and Indigenous peoples have the right to uh, be messy with each other. And we have the right to know that our governance systems were strong enough to hold for that and strong enough for, to heal for that without resorting to carceral solutions. Um, and so for many of us, harm reduction is deeply held within our ancestral teachings and not something we ever needed to go to, God forbid, public health to learn about. Um, Okay, Yohande, I'm switching over to you. Maybe next slide as well. Yeah, next slide, please. Um, yes, I'm going to read a little bit, um, a little bit of what's in the book from us, and then yeah, then we'll have a little, a little talk back at the end. Um, so here we go. 
Indigenous people have been practicing harm reduction for more than 500 years. It was never supposed to be confined to injection, injection drug use or substance use. It's been a way of looking at the world and practicing care where people are experiencing many forms of violence. If we think of harm reduction as this broad-based practice and Indigenous survival skill, then there's been many forms of it over the generations, even if we didn't call it that. Within Indigenous feminisms, the practice is about say, staying alive or trying to. Of course, we were not always successful because our deaths have always been the intended outcome of colonization. When I think about the land back movement, people speaking out about sexual violence, Bill C-31, women in our communities who have been disenfranchised through marriage and patriarchal social policy, that's harm reduction. Colonizers said that the purpose of removing children into residential schools was because of harm happening to Indigenous children around a perceived lack of literacy or Western education, which also, um, which also conveniently removed people from the lands that were deemed desirable. We didn't practice the same agricultural practices as Europeans, so that was deemed harmful to the economy. It's all bullshit but that was one of the many justifications for the creation of reservations. The anti-saviorship is a response to very public, prominent Canadian and American founders talking about kill the Indian, save the child. It's such a glaringly public piece of history in terms of the social policy justification and foundation of public health. This is this little doll inside of another doll of terribleness. That's what we're responding to. Colonizers have told us what is harming us when, really, it's about what's harming the settler colonial collective. Now we are asking ourselves, how do we self-determine what is harmful and what isn't? The colonizer narrative that substance use and addictions are the biggest problem in our communities is super hell racist and actually just an excuse to discount a lot of our relatives. Where do you look at how we practice harm reduction and see indigenous culture incorporated that goes unrecognized by mainstream harm reduction movements? Krista, hosting is a really good example because it's coercive to do anything with someone who hasn't eaten or is coming down. Food has to be part of the consent process if you want participation. If your basic needs haven't been met, it's too distracting to do any sort of programming or intervention. Emma, Nishin negotiates with communities to make sure that youth leaders will be fed well. Yeah, pick whatever you want to eat and we'll cover it. You don't need to look at the prices. This is really grounding and centering of wellness. That's about recognizing accessibility. Youth leadership doesn't mean throwing the youth into a sacrificial fire and telling them to figure it out. It's about recognizing that oftentimes honoraria gets spent on substances, rent, or picking up your cousins from school. By the time the gig rolls around, maybe they need a meal. Krista, I love that example because it's not that revolutionary. How is that not basic practice? It's so obvious, but in other funded programs, that's not the design. Laverne, who I think co-founded or founded the Ontario Aboriginal HIV AIDS strategy, talked about how the fundamentals of harm reduction were based in Indigenous teachings of love. 
She talked about non-judgmental care and meeting people where they're at. Love is one of our grandparent teachings. Shane, a lot of community members have amazing, strong, caring values, but also carry the impacts of colonialism. That is a barrier to transforming tra trauma for themselves and to be able to see someone fully as they are and support them. Yahande, I would add gifting, which says, we respect you, you are worthy, you deserve love. A good example is Indigenous Birth of Alberta's online webinars for labor, birth, lactation, and all kinds of things. The first certain number of people who sign up get a free care package. That's how you do it. How is harm reduction an anti-colonial practice? What does it center and what does it reclaim that reinforces those things? Krista, all of these instructions around Mino Bimaz, Emma, do you want to help me? <laughs> that one's Anishinaabe. So our, our lovely Mohawk speaker here is Mino Bimadizalan. Thank you. The dish with one spoon, grandparent teachings are passed down and very deliberately taught. There were systems put in place to teach future generations the same protocols. Those things were also deliberately removed and disrupted in favor of capitalism, land theft, and genocide. There is a deliberate process of forgetting in terms of public health. They are not owning their ignorance. It's part of a larger discussion. Complicated with communities who experience marginalization and violence as a result of arriving here. That informs how we talk about ourselves and our community. How we talk about people who are trying to bring in progressive public health interventions. How we speak back to that and continue to have energy to talk amongst ourselves and figure out our own shit. How do we balance resistance work with reclamation work? Not just talking about what you don't want, but enacting the future that you do want. This is the tension. Marie, the phrase meet them where they're at makes me think of the edge of the wood ceremony. You stop at the edge, light a fire, and then folks see the smoke and come. You greet each other and have a conversation about why you're there, what you're bringing, and what you want to get out of this visit or situation or relationship or whatever is happening at the time. It's about consent, which is inextricable from harm, uh, harm reduction. When we support folks in our community, it's not only a responsibility to that person, it's to the community at large to make a place where folks are able to share their gifts with the rest of us. We all have so much wisdom and so many gifts and co colonialism and mainstream institutions prevent people from being able to share those gifts with one another. Emma. There was an interview project with elders and relatives in the downtown east side where they gathered up their wisdom about harm reduction and substance use. It's beautiful and awesome, but there is tension between how much we tell what we do and what you need to do in your own community. It's that piece between empowerment versus instruction. That part of what self-determination is about, recognizing what works here might not work there. The skill of being in relation with each other and creating spaces where people can connect and figure out solutions based on their life is beautiful. The information, the support, the practical, putting out all of that stuff and then being like, well, we'll help you figure it out together, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. 
That's also a very indigenous way of teaching and learning. When Shane described that person out in the cold, responsibility, responsibility to them isn't coming from a place of saviorship. It's coming from reciprocity. It's not about saying, oh, look at them. They have nothing. I have everything. It's about saying, actually, we're all in a balance and this person has gifts. This is a principle of how we approach things from a non-judgmental and peer-led space. That's also a harvesting practice. It's about that reciprocity of understanding that it's never just one way of rationality, relationality. If done right, you're always understanding that we are all coming into this world with gifts and our worlds would benefit and our worlds benefit when we're able to share our gifts with one another. That's our little excerpt moment. <laughs> Oh, Johanne, <laughs> so sweet and loving to have your own words spoken back to you by someone who you love. Um, next slide, uh, second to last slide, uh, we just wanted to touch a little bit about the ways that we as mission youth leaders engage with harm reduction in our community. And this is really like, what does that mean? <laughs> I'm engaging in harm reduction right now by trying to feed myself while on this call. Like so many speakers already here have said, it's about like honoring um, and honoring the accountability we hold to ourselves and each other. Um, but some like we all incorporate harm reduction to our personal practices, either at, for Yohande as a doula who supports uh, pregnant folks uh, in their community of Ganawage. Um, or myself here on the West Coast. Uh, I hold art space every Saturday um, in our like safer uh, consumption site and turned art gallery <laughs> in downtown Vic. Um, don't tell the landlord. Uh, <laughs> um, and I think we'll also be sharing a beautiful resource that was made um, for harm reduction for our Sundance ceremonies, where oftentimes people are making offerings of flesh or experiencing piercing ceremonially. And so there was some really gorgeous, loving thought that went into thinking about like, okay, how do we share what we know <laughs> about using sharps and being around sharps with these ceremonial knowledge keepers while also knowing that they have a wealth of knowledge all their own. And also so do we. Um, and then uh, our environmental violence uh, toolkit, land, uh, connected to land, connected to body also looks at harm reduction and how we've been resisting these times of colonialism while reclaiming uh, who we are as the original people. So uh, our last slide uh, is just uh, thank you and Yale Miigwech from me. Um, Shira also made the really generous offer to hold our interview as a, as a conversational format rather than making us uh, <laughs> yell like cats over a Google document that no one wants to be sat down in front of because we're also existing in this, oh my gosh, do we do the work or write the work? And oftentimes we're called to do the work before we can write about it. So um, it's really generous because already I've had occasions where I'm asked to come in and speak about harm reduction or share ideas and I'm really looking forward to being able to share this book with uh, back to our communities. Yohande, so, any closing words? Um, I guess just sharing about like the ways that 
I practice harm reduction. Um, yeah, in my community and in general, right. It's like just holding space, holding space for people. Um, when you're going through intense situations, like at a hospital or, you know, any reproductive issue is always, it's always freaky. Um, so having a doula, um, there as like a human buffer (laughs) between, um, the institutions in so-called Canada, like it means, it means a lot. It means a lot just to have someone else watching what's going on. Um, when you're going through an intense experience, it's nice to have like, you don't have to, you don't have to be worried about that. Um, right now you have uh, yourself to worry about and you have other situations. So yeah, that's just another example, but that's, that's about it for me. So much brilliance. Okay, for some more brilliance, uh, we'll we'll turn it over to Erica. Um, Gretch, everyone. Wow, thank you so much, Yahande and Emma, Shira. I cannot tell you how excited I am that this book is in the world. It's been such an honor to be witness, to contribute in small ways, and to just see you center the revolutionary spirit and work of so many people in our community um, to really write a pretty big wrong around um, just how fucked up (laughs) we all have been around kind of the co-optation of harm reduction. So I am here today to talk a little bit about um, the chapter, which is about the intersections of harm reduction and healing justice. And there was an interview um, between Shira, myself, and my comrade, co-conspirator Kara Page. Before I before I go into our our contribution, I wanted to just talk a little bit about how I came into harm reduction, actually how I came to healing justice, because um, I came to social justice work really through doing direct service work inside of harm reduction. And for a long time, it was the my organizing spiritual practice. It really helped me connect to um, truly from a heartfelt place what this work is really about and what it means for us to both fight for our people, fight for ourselves, and to, to maintain our dignity at all costs. And so although I am, you know, most of my work sits inside of the the healing justice world, and obviously it's many intersections um, to harm reduction and other political frameworks, um, it was actually through conversations with Shira that I realized that I felt like I was very late to the healing justice conversation. Um, And Shira really helped me understand that um, there's been an intentional kind of ignoring of of the roots of harm reduction inside of that framework as well. So I think about this political moment that we're in and how important it is that we are claiming, reclaiming, recentering, remembering liberatory harm reduction um, and really thinking about liberatory harm reduction and healing justice as the answers to the big transitions, transformations and the rebirthing that we're seeing at this time. How do we use liberatory harm reduction to address this cosmic shift that is happening? Um, That's one of the things I've been spending a lot of time thinking about, talking about, and writing about with Kara. Um, When we think about the intersection of these two frameworks, I think about survivor-led strategies to transform trauma and violence, right? 
And I think about what it means for us to do that outside of, of state models of care. So some of what I want to lift up from our interview um, centers around three themes that feel really important around this intersection. The first is just to name what has already been named, just the immense co-optation of our people's work, of our people's brilliance, of our people's scholarship. Another important intersection is really looking at the ways libertarian harm reduction and, and healing justice ask us to and invite us to disrupt and dismantle the medical industrial complex and to also fight back against the criminalization of care work that's outside of state models of care. So I'm going to read, I'm going to kind of read throughout this time together around these themes. So, Erica, I think the roots of harm reduction are very much about how are we clapping back at the medical industrial complex so that our people don't die. There was so much more organization back in the 80s and 90s. But now with the mainstreaming and professionalization of harm reduction, I mean, people are literally not even getting their hands dirty, like for real. They're wearing suits and ties at conferences, you know, not to say there's anything wrong with that. But when I came into harm reduction, there was something so comforting about how close it was to people. It was really led by us and for us before all of this professionalization took hold. Kara, I guess I just want to talk a little bit about the impact of the MIC on people who are, who are currently or formerly incarcerated, who are institutionalized, who are sex workers. To me, that's also a critical connection between harm reduction and healing justice, because our people deserve not only to get access to care, but to understand how the industries, private corporations, prisons, all the things, big pharma, have built their industries literally on our backs. That to me is critical. That's why I think I'm going more through an abolitionist anti-MIC lens, which is a part of the healing justice analysis, but gets lost. I do a lot of work with social workers, mental health practitioners um, from other fields and backgrounds. And one of the things that bothers me to no end is the ahistorical and apolitical um, one-dimensional version of harm reduction that um, if we're taught harm reduction at all, <laughs> um, that we get offered in a lot of our programs. And it, it almost has been reduced down to a number of cliches. And so I'm so excited that I can direct people to um, what this work is really about um, and call people back into alignment around the values. One of my favorite parts of this conversation was talking about libertarian harm reduction as a spiritual practice. And so I'm going to read a couple of pieces related to that. Erica. When I was in my early 20s looking for a spiritual practice, my spiritual practice was harm reduction. The people who are most disposable, who are experiencing the most suffering, those are my people. And that's who I wanna be in community with. Now, I think the same is true for healing justice as it was for harm reduction back then. It feels like healing justice practitioners who are on the ground, really close to the needs, 
and what's happening, articulated an intervention around those needs and have that political framing because of the condition. One of the things that I was going to say is that ride or die harm reduction could really fuck up some of the dynamics around healing justice right now, because I feel there's a lot of spiritual performance among healers. And I'm like, what if you were faced with active drug users who are HIV positive or engaging in sex work or living outside? What if you were forced to actually interface with the folks who are considered most disposable in our world? That's not clean or pretty. Your whites are gonna get dirty. You know what I mean? And I think the thing that immediately comes to mind is I don't want to be orienting around just reducing harm. That can't be the end point. The communities that I worked within the context of doing strictly harm reduction work, people were engaging in some of the most transformative healing processes in jails, in prisons, on the street. It all comes back to how we are navigating and facing into and addressing immense human suffering. I should, have not, I should not have been doing the work I was doing because I wasn't trained up, but that's how harm reduction works. I feel like I learned so much by witnessing what people were healing through in conditions that were unimaginable to me. So I think that the healing justice frame in its true form could offer, what would it mean to consider that healing is always available to us actually, regardless of the situations that we're in? What's the healing that needs to happen inside of the harm reduction community? The last theme that I want to lift up around the intersection of harm reduction and healing justice really is thinking about this piece around building power and transforming conditions. Being really clear about the root of the problem, being really clear that we need to stop blaming survivors for surviving. We need to stop criminalizing survivors for surviving. Erica, I think the primary definition of harm reduction that has guided my work is around really contextualizing the choices that people have available to them under the conditions of structural violence that we're living in. And this piece around behavior change, not looking at that in a vacuum, looking at behaviors that are considered harmful or behaviors that are criminalized and actually teasing out where is the real harm? Is it in the thing itself or is it in the criminalization of that thing? What are the options and resources that people need so that they have more choices? But people get to still do what they do, right? Harm reduction is the real centering of the inherent dignity of every being, period. I think it's about having real conversations about what are some collective consequences of substance use, sex work, HIV, not to blame people for their individual choices, but to actually be like, what does it mean to address those collectively instead of holding individual people responsible for choices that they're making? Kara, yeah, I love what you just said. How do we honor our survival strategies? Where are we not targeted or criminalized for our behavior or our needs or our desires. Another important piece on harm reduction is about the street economy and being anti-capitalist. When I read what YWEP put out on this, it changed my work and our work in the reproductive justice movement, or at least those who were listening to youth and sex workers. 
Thank you, YWEP, for saying this. The street economy is good shit. These are actually ancestral technologies. These are our survival strategies. This is real work, and we cannot be bought or stolen. We are priceless. It's the name of YWEP's website, youarepriceless.org. Because everything else says that we are expendable and worth nothing. But everything that we list inside of liberatory harm reduction, if I use drugs, I am not worthless. If I need to do sex work, I'm adding to the survival economy. You all just flip the whole fucking narrative. YWEP said, and a practice rooted in liberatory harm reduction said, I'm in my power and we can be empowered together. If we move in formation with this shared understanding, we're doing what we need to do because the, because society doesn't give a fuck about whether we live or die. I was like, that's my definition. You are priceless. Shira, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this work. Thank you so much for this collection of story. Um, also so much thanks to all of the people who are included in this project, all the guides, all the ancestors who helped to make this a reality. And just cannot wait to, to get so many copies and hand it out to all of my comrades who have been looking and waiting for a book like this. I'm on mute. Okay. Thank you so much. I'm so glad I have things written down because I've lost it all, like all the order and flow that my brain barely has a lot is escaping. And so I want to just do a few things before we end. I want to thank every single presenter here tonight. And I think you can tell from the little bits that they gave you how incredible and legendary and critical to our survival, their work is. Every single person in this book changed my life, but also changed the movement. And so first I wanna just quickly read you the definition, the working definition, a definition that I know is going to grow and change and that I can't wait to hear how it grows and change over time of what we're calling liberatory harm reduction as a way to separate it from public health harm reduction. And so I want to just say um, that this is what is in sort of the definition in the book of what is liberatory harm reduction. Liberatory harm reduction is not new. It was born from decades of revolutionary practice. This section was written in reflection with queer and trans activists and practitioners, almost all of them BIPOC, some of whom I've been lucky enough to be in practice with for nearly 30 years. As I spoke, I spoke to them as I was trying to sift and sort through the distinctions in the work, both inside and outside of institutions and social services. Everyone here has either been a young person in harm reduction or has worked with young people as an organizer. We have all also been working to end violence without the state and social services using harm reduction and transformative justice strategies. The definitions and concepts in this section were discussed, refined, and reviewed by Erica Woodland, Priya Rai, Adrian Marie Brown, Monique Tula, Kelly Dorsey, Emmy Koyama, Micah Hobbs-Fraser, Benji Hart, Latonia Alvarado Rivera, Bonsai Bermudez, Maya Depp Pachucci Cruz, Sarah Daoud, Xavier Matra, 
Dominique Morgan, Monica Jones, Andrea J. Ritchie, Miriam Kaba, Dina Lewis, Rachel Kaidor, Dominique McKinney, Kelly McGowan, and Dr. Laura Janine Mintz. I want to just tell you at the end of the day, public health and social work and medicine are not concerned with putting themselves out of business. They are not concerned with building our collective power, keeping the lights on and thousands of people employed, keeping the institutions lawsuit free, keeping the system intact is the primary purpose of hospital administrators, corporate nonprofits, and public health. And while I do in fact want both systems of healthcare and social services to center harm reduction, we need to acknowledge that liability laws make the application of a liberatory harm reduction almost impossible. So I want to just give this definition with humility, with the full hope and expectation that it's going to change over time as it's honed by activists and practitioners seeking to make and name the intangible. Liberatory harm reduction is a philosophy and set of empowerment-based practices that teach us how to accompany each other as we transform the root causes of harm in our lives. We put our values into action using real-life strategies to reduce the negative health, legal, and social consequences that result from criminalized and stigmatized life experiences, such as drug use, sex, the sex trade, sex work, surviving intimate partner violence, self-injury, eating disorders, and any other survival strategies deemed morally or socially unacceptable. Liberatory harm reductionists support each other and our communities without judgment, stigma, or coercion, and we do not force others to change. We envision a world without racism, capitalism, patriarchy, misogyny, ableism, transphobia, policing, surveillance, and other systems of violence. Liberatory harm reduction is true self-determination and total body autonomy. And so many people in my personal lineage, as I was talking to them about where did we get this and how did it come from? Where did it come from? And I realized that some of the most critical conversations that I was having was people were uh, people who started some of the earliest exchanges in this country. So I want to shout out some of the people who are in this book. I'm going to try to name all of the contributors. Um, because they go so often unnamed. For example, I want to name Catlin Fullwood, who I think started one of the first syringe exchanges in the country, who is Black, queer um, person who has been working on abolition and transformative justice in the 1980s in Seattle through People of Color AIDS Network. I want to shout out Monique Tula. I want to shout out Kelly Dorsey, Imani Woods, Fred Johnson. I want to shout out Kelly McGowan, who changed my life and the life of so many. I want to shout out Kiara St. James. And I want to shout out um, Vincent Panama Alba from The Young Lords, who there's an article in here about the Lincoln Detox Center and how that contributed to the concepts around healing justice and harm reduction in the 70s when the Black Panthers and the Young Lords worked together to take over Lincoln Hospital. Um, you heard from Native Youth Sexual Health Network and you heard a little bit from Erica Woodland and uh, the book that Erica and Kara um are going to be releasing called Healing Justice Lineages talks um, and their article here talks so much about the intersection of healing justice and harm reduction and why it's so critical that we remember how interconnected they are. I want to talk a little bit um, about this incredible article that 
Latoni and Bonsai, Latoni Alvarado Rivera and Bonsai Bermudez, two legendary um, Chicago youth workers who've been practicing and breathing life into harm reduction um, for the last 15 years here. I want to talk about Leah Lakshmi Papizna Samarasinha, who contributed a beautiful piece around disability justice and harm reduction. I want to talk about uh, Nikki McKinney, Dominique McKinney, founder and director of Street Youth Rise Up, who was the former executive director of Young Women's Empowerment Project. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the work that um, Fireweed and Icarus Project um, did through their piece, which is applying liberatory harm reduction to mental health and psychiatric medication. The incredible conversations I had with Naima Lowe and with Gloria Lucas around eating disorders and liberatory harm reduction, um, which has been something that I've been thinking and working on for years. And then all the conversations I had with so many sex workers who have been organizing um, for decades with Monica Jones, with Dion Haywood. Um, I got to talk to Joanna Burton Martinez through Danzine, who's one of the people who created the Bad Encounter line, which, or, I'm sorry, who created the Bad Date Sheet, which became the basis for so much of how we track police violence that we don't even realize that early tool that they that sex workers created called the bad date sheet is how we track so much data today in movement spaces that was given to us by sex workers. And I want to shout out Mariam Kaba and Dominique Morgan um, and Rosario Dawson, who talks about some of the incredible work that her mom, um, Isabel and Kelly McGowan did um, in the squats on the Lower East Side of New York City. So many incredible people who we would really movement would be nowhere without them. And we think that harm reduction sort of sprang fully formed from the veins of white male needle users. And in reality, it came through so much of all of our collective survival resilience strategies that go back generations, decades, and centuries. Um, and before we even um, knew what time was, we were practicing harm reduction. And we were also trying to save each other, save our own lot and save our own lives. So I want to close with one more brief reading. And um, before I do that, I realized that my um, charger is out. And so I'm a little nervous, but I think it will work. Um, so let's, let's, um, Let's read together. Um, so as I was writing this book, I asked loved ones, comrades, and thought partners to, to review drafts. And so many people gave me the feedback that what's contained in these pages builds the heart and takes time to absorb. In order to write this, I accessed some of my deepest vulnerability and did my best to navigate the line between sharing enough to make the book feel alive and connected to our communities and yours and maintaining a political grounded meta-analysis. And I'm only half joking when I say that during this two-year writing process, which felt like an excavation, excavation, I exhausted my highly competent and talented therapist and my service dog needed to re-up his training. 
One of the scariest parts of this project was deciding which of my own stories could serve this book without sharing too much with you or challenging my deeply private nature. I hold close the value that I learned from Young Women's Empowerment Project that one person's story should not be elevated above that of the collective where it risks simplifying us, making all of our stories the same and making us targets in the eyes of the world and the state. I repeat polystyrene's lyrics, I am a cliche, to remind me that nothing I have experienced is terribly unique, freeing me from the shame of being alone with my trauma and opening me up to a whole community of people. I'm afraid to share my stories because my memories are skewed by pain and yet remain my truth. I'm afraid to tell my stories because I've made so many mistakes, caused others grief, suffering. I'm afraid to share my stories because of what you will or won't think, say, believe about me and others like me. I offer these intimacies with understanding that each one, in the words of my palm reader, Amelia, are both significantly powerful and powerfully insignificant in our practice to reclaim our resilient strategies. I'm, I'm choosing to be brave by sharing these stories because as Chicago liberatory harm reduction practitioner, Maya Depp Patucci Cruz said to me, liberatory harm reduction is different because it asks us to self-reflect, hold space for us to grow, to let go of shame, to change or not change, to make mistakes, to keep showing up anyway. I hope that this book offers a space for us to dislodge our shame and live into the beauty of our mess because doing that can be heavy work. I invite you to be cozy with it, to read this with friends, comrades, chosen family and loved ones, skip around chapters and interviews and get lost in the images. This book space is generous and generative. This book space honors mistakes. There is no perfection here. This book gives us space to transform shame. This book space knows that curiosity and judgment cannot coexist. We know and believe that multiple truths can coexist. We answer judgment with curiosity with a question. This book space holds our pace, our questions, our grief, our joy, our self-care, and our collective care. When I reflect on the work of the people who've contributed to this book, I'm awed into silence. I am often stunned by the beauty of the people I have met in my journey to find healing and wholeness, and I'm humbled in the face of such a collection of bravery that this constellation of interviews and images presents. Mariam Kaba teaches us that hope is a discipline, and I would add that liberatory harm reduction is the discipline of hope. We must continue to divorce the overfocus by public health on our bodies as sites of disease by embracing the entirety of who we are, each and all of us. This means our organizing strategies must include people who are high in meetings, who are high in therapy, who are in the sex trade, who are sex working, who are making decisions about their mental health and wellness that may not fit into the medical model. We must continue to demand trauma-centered practice that's more than trauma-informed, which profits from our pain and uses liability as an excuse for institutional violence. As I write this, knowing that my own shame spirals are sometimes too much to bear, I remember that the conclusion of a book about liberatory practice should also come with next steps that we can take from our beds, from the bath, and from the streets. This book is about developing a practice and reshaping our politic. It's asking us to stay in love with each other's survival and to push back on the systems that shred our values in exchange for flimsy reproductions of our community's precious rituals.
In all of my workshops and talks, I close the session by asking people to take a pledge that honors the roots of liberatory harm reduction. And as I end this, I find myself wanting to close out by imagining all of our voices combined into a single chant. I ask you to join me in a pledge to all of those legendary and radical roots of those who came before us and those who survived and those who became ancestors who keep sending us messages from the next world. I ask you to promise with me that every time you talk about harm reduction, every time you have a conversation about this critical life-saving philosophy, about this love letter from our radical comrades, that you remember and that you share with other people that harm reduction was started by BIPOC organizers, by people in the sex trade, by trans people, by sex workers, by drug users, by young people, by people who were street-based, by people who were disabled and chronically ill, by anti-racist activists who want to see our resilience reflected intergenerationally. They want us to remember that we have everything that we need to survive inside our relationships with each other, inside our creative and brilliant community connections, inside our coping strategies, inside our joy, and inside our grief. They want us to release the shame that comes with our struggle and live into our complexity. They want us to carry ourselves and each other through the reality of this beautiful mess with rage and glamour, with love and fury, with creativity and despondence, with generosity and curiosity. And they don't want us to be anything but here. So thank you so much to so many people. And if you can switch to the slide that says thank you. Sean, I just want to shout out all of the people one more time, because this book could not have been written without the handholding and hard work of Dina Lewis, Mariam Kaba, Kelly McGowan, Laura Janine Mintz, Rachel Kaidor, and Il Weaver. Thank you to Leah Lakshmi, Papizna, Samarasinha, and Jill Petty for your early and critical support of this project. Thank you so much to Haymarket and Julie and all the patience and belief that you had in me. I'm so grateful for my thought partners with whom I've been building and creating a complex web of care and pushback. Naima Lowe, Jesse Aronsaft Holly, Erica Woodland, Kara Page, Kelly Dorsey, Emmy Koyama, Adrian Marie Brown, Alan Frimbog, Marcus Rogers, Micah Hobbs Frazier, Ryan Lee Dostrom, Abby Ellenberger, Maya Depp Petucci Cruz, Monique Tula, Pigeon Gonis. Kumasi Jaquin, Lisa Tana, Alyssa Hull, Taylor Casey, Benji Hart, Lara Brooks, Grace Sukin Clauber, Dominique McKinney, Stacey Ehrenberg, Ajira Stixon, Nomi Lamb, Aaron Daly, Mary Ann Russell, Beth Ritchie, Catlin Fullwood, Mimi Kim, Andrea Ritchie. I am so grateful to every single one of you and to Lauren Perlman, who named early in this book that what I was really writing about was the beauty of queer chosen family. And the reality is, is that I would be nowhere, absolutely nowhere without queer chosen family. And I know that's true for so many of us. And I cannot wait to read the next book that comes out about liberatory harm reduction and the incredible lineage wherever you are and the documents that you can find and create because we need to write it all down. We need to gather it all up. We need these critical recipes for our survival. And I can't wait to stay in love with your survival. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.